0: Be the instructor of our hearts. Speak this morning through the sharing of your word, Lord God, that we might hear your spirits wooing to each and every one of us right at the point of our need. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak. Hide our pastor this morning behind the cross. That you might be lifted up and that you might call us afresh personally to follow you. In your holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. I think it was about six or eight weeks ago where uh, I was praying through what would follow the last series. And I always try to stay out in front. That's always a a prayerful task. Uh, But in truth, there's lots of times where I sense a slate for where we're wanting to go, and I trust the Spirit right up to the moment as to fill in the flesh on those bones. And so this morning, I, I have a, uh, um, a sermon outline up there, but to tell you the truth, in what I've prayed about, and what I've studied, and what's come to my heart, I'm not sure that that outline is going to carry the freight. Can I just admit that this morning? And what I'd rather have happen is for the Holy Spirit just to take over And to speak what he's been laying on my heart to you. And for you to have an opportunity to assess that, hear that for all that that might be. Um, That prayer just a moment ago was completely honest. Uh, But about six to eight weeks ago, this just um, jumped at me as being right. That we would study during this season after having looked at our own mission statements for being disciples. Uh, what it meant to be Jesus' apprentice. Uh, that's really just another term for being a disciple. And I'm hoping specifically by uh, wrapping it in that term that there is a freshness that will come to our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. That I think is right at the working edge of what the Lord wants to be going on in my life as an individual and perhaps in yours as well. Uh, I think God's growing this understanding amongst our staff and uh, in our church during this season of how it is that we actually step into what John Thompson talked about last week. Uh, didn't y'all enjoy Tom, uh, John this last week? <clears throat> Wasn't he fantastic? He, talk, he talked about basically just the simple calling of Jesus to all of us as disciples. Do you remember what it was? He had us uh, recite it several times. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. It's about discipleship. Follow Jesus. Discipleship. I will make you is about transformation. It's about personal development. Into this agent of God that he sees us being. And he saw something in Peter that Peter could not see in himself. That morning, at that moment, he was even doubting if he was a fisherman of fish. Do you remember that? Had been up all night long. The expert that he was in the fishing business had brought him in how many fish? Goose egg. He had not caught a thing all night long. And this wasn't, uh, this wasn't just casual fishing. Uh, a day out on the lake, a day out, this was his livelihood, right? His mama at home and the kids and his wife, they got nothing to eat today. You know, they didn't have refrigeration back then. Uh, much less did he have anything to sell in order for all of his other, he had come up with nothing. And he was the head of the fishing crew. And Jesus meets him there on that, at that shore at that low place and him believing in himself and sees something in him that Peter can't even take in. Simon, he's called at the time. Jesus says, go out into the deep, cast your nets on the other side. Well, Jesus just goes to show you don't know anything about fishing. The fish go deep at this time of the day, cast our nets. Sure, we'll go out, we throw our cast over the other side and... <gasps> The nets are so full that they almost sink the boats. Can you, do you see this? Fish flopping everywhere. They just it's already full. They can't get if we put any more in the boat will go down. We'll lose them all. I mean they're having these kind of conversations and then Peter looks up sees Jesus on the shore and Jesus' challenge to Peter is follow me and I will make you a fisherman of men. Now I think in part Peter's great confidence in Jesus was he had just shown him that he was not just the Lord of religious stuff. He was the Lord of all life. He could show him how to catch fish, and, but pretty much anything else to live the abundant life. He was the author of that, and he was the just teacher, but... When he said, follow me, and I will make you a fisherman of men, that had just happened after the disciples were mending their nets on the side of the shore, having caught nothing, and Jesus at that very moment had been a fisherman of men. He had as many people on that shore or more than the disciples ended up with in their nets. But notice how this story ends. The disciples' nets are now full, but left behind. And they're walking away with Jesus whose nets are now full. He was a fisherman of men extraordinaire. When Jesus threw out his net, there's no telling what might show up in one of them. It, it, was, it, it, was, it, was, it was not like Jesus had, had a specific lure for a specific kind of person. You know, most religious experiences are that way. They tend to draw a certain type of people because they're a certain type of promise or practice. But not Jesus. Jesus was like seining. Have any of you ever, they do that in Mississippi where, where my family grew up. And I've seen men out in a pond with a big seine net. And and they throw the net in on one side and start to stretch it out and and guys jump in on the other side. You know these are crazy people. They you know the kind of person that noodles. You know sticks their hand up in a hole somewhere, grabs a catfish by the throat and pulls it out. Caught it. You know these 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 are these are crazy. And and they they get in that pond. Snakes come slithering out and frogs and everything. I've stood back and watched them stomp through that muddy water as they take everything in that pond towards the net. And then the guys on the net wrap around the stompers and come in behind and enclose it, and they pull everything that wiggles out of that pond. I mean, there's turtles, there's fish, there's snakes. Jesus was a fisherman of everything. Publicans, prostitutes, uh, tax collectors, Pharisees, religious, non-religious, those who leave early from the wedding receptions, and those who stay late. It didn't matter. He, He lured all kinds of people because in him was life. Not just some religious experience. Life, fully lit, was Jesus And he drew all kinds of people to himself. And this is what Jesus turns and says to his disciples, follow me and I will make you a fisherman of men. Jesus was saying, come be my apprentice that you may do what what I do. He was inviting them to apprenticeship. John chapter 14 Verse 12 says that those, this is Jesus talking about you. Did you know Jesus said some things about you? (laughs) Write this one down. John 14, 12. Jesus said this about you. And they who believe in me, these works that I do shall they do and greater still. Jesus said that about you. And he said that about me. And, and, and what troubles me this morning is how, do you not feel a big gap between what it is that, that even I do as a pastor and what we do as a church and what we do as individuals? I, I, I sense this troubling gap between what Jesus did and, and what I do. But you know, that really shouldn't come as a surprise. Because most of us learned those things that required extraordinary skill, not in a classroom and not from a book. Someone mentored us, right? Think about it. Here, let's go ahead to the next slide. Think about it. Now, you know, you, you can take one of those little archery things with the rubber stoppers on the backyard or, or you know, line up your sister across the room and you can learn some things, but, but but I've never been mentored in archery, and I understand it takes someone looking over you, paying attention to every twitch you make, your posture, your aim, your release. So much goes into that simple action that's really quite complex. How about this one, this next one? You know, working in a work, workshop. Apprentices. It, it was common in those days, back, back really... Uh, I think in the 13 or 1400s, when apprenticeship was natural, most, most uh, uh, of the work in the world was tradesmanship of different kinds. And so you would, this is the way apprenticeship worked. You hired yourself out to someone whose work you admired and who inspired you. You would hire yourself, you would actually become that person's slave in return for being alongside them as they did what they did so you could learn what they did and do it in your own way. That's what apprenticeship was about. Next slide. Apprenticeship is getting into it together. It's not teaching from a safe distance. It's, It's coming along right aside someone. It's doing life together. And Jesus chose 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. Well, if if apprenticeship is such a part of discipleship, why don't we see it more? I'm getting ahead of myself. Next slide. How how good a swimmer? How many of you swim? How many of you learned that from a book? How how good a swimmer do you think you would be if if your ability to be a swimmer had come about solely uh, by reading a book, and by listening to a lecture, would, would any of us have confidence in water over our head? Right? Uh, but but often I, I now I wonder if I if I could do this too. I, I've had some people in my life that have influenced me, that have helped me along the way, and I'm very very thankful for them. But I was 45 years old before I was ever mentored. How many of you have had an apprentice relationship with someone? A few around the room? That's awesome. Awesome. Very good. But I, for the most part, our church experience, I think, is not transforming us. I think because we're missing one of the elements that our sensei had in his routine all along. He, he, he mentored people one-on-one. And it's not mentioned so much in scripture, I think, because it was just assumed. If I was to talk about school and going to school, would it be necessary, given our common experience, for me to mention desks and blackboards and PowerPoint or whatever it is they use today? I'm dating myself here, you know. Uh, overhead projectors, you know, you're anybody in that era? Uh, we wouldn't have to mention all that. that. That would just be how we saw it. And in those days... People were mentored into things. It started first with the family. In Deuteronomy 6, the Lord says, And teach these things to your sons and to your grandsons. Pass along this, that the God is one. Uh, and to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. When Jesus asked that to a crowd, and he says, what's the greatest commandment? They knew it because they had been taught it, not at synagogue, but first of all, on their mother's and father's knee. It it was the nature of people development at the time. Think about it. How many Moses in scripture can you think of that did not have a Joshua? Elijah's that did not have an Elisha, right? Right? Even Jeremiah, he, he spoke the prophecy. Baruch wrote it down. It, it was the common model of people development in its time. But in our era, we've gone didactic classroom style and the university experience. But even there, even there. Oh, the next one. Would you trust a doctor that never had an internship? Okay, great. You've got all the latest learning. You've read up on all the cutting edge places of where medicine is today. You know it. You've been tested on it. You've passed all the tests. You're on the cutting edge. But if you've never cut with an edge before, stay away from me with that thing. You know what I'm talking about? The, the apprenticeship. There's only some things that you can learn. Uh... Without being shown. Uh, next one. How about that? That's without being shown. Next one. Courtney and Jonathan and David have had driver's ed, but you all have me to think that they were not released into this world without some of Dad's coaching. Just saying. And, and they're good, responsible kids. But oh my gosh. Oh, you know how many, you ever taught your kids to drive? Uh huh. Yeah, yeah, that's a come to Jesus moment right there. How, how, how well can we develop what it is to live as Jesus, not just being taught it, but having a chance to catch it? Some things aren't best just taught. They're best caught. And I think that was Jesus' intention. I think that's what he expected. I think he expected his life to be replicated in the lives of his disciples. As every mentor expected his life, his way, to be replicated. In those that he was mentoring, he was sponsoring, he was being the leader in that apprentice relationship. Now, you, you may doubt that. You may think, well, you know, Jesus, Jesus knows me. And he doesn't have such high expectations of me. You're right. Jesus knows you. He knows all of your weaknesses. He knows all of your strengths. He knows where you might fall. He knows where you might cave. He he, he knows all of that about you, but you know his great confidence in you is not his confidence in you, it's his confidence in him in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Replicating the way of the master. Jesus' expectation I think is clear. They who believe in me, shall go to church. They who believe in me shall do what I do. Shall do what I have been doing and greater things than these even shall we do. Now, this series as it unfolds, is going to try to answer the question in a way that, that we can see ourselves living into it. Try to answer the question, what did Jesus do? If he's going to show us a life that we can replicate in this world, that we can live in a similar way, that we could be even recognized as Jesus' followers, as Peter was that day that he went to uh, In Acts chapter 4, the day he ended up in front of the same guys that had lynched Jesus. And they said, who is this uneducated man? He's obviously been with Jesus. And I hope they, I hope that's what's said about me when it's all said and done. This afternoon, I have the great privilege of going and... uh, I was actually called by his wife, and she said, you know, Chris, uh, you know Mike very well, and I know he's had influence in your life when you were younger. Would you be willing to come to Mike's retirement party and, you know, just say a few words? And I said, I'd be absolutely honored to. And Mike Means, principal at Jinx High School, is having his retirement party today. I'll be going from the baptism this afternoon directly over there to say a few words. Do that preacher thing you do. But that's not why she invited me, I don't think. It wasn't because I was a preacher. It's because she knows the background story. She knows that Mike, in just a few moments that he shared with me in high school, and it couldn't have been more than several hours, really, if you added up all that time. He would meet with me before school. And it wasn't just something I did in my home. I finally, I I, I met a man, a grown man for whom the scriptures passionately mattered. Not just because he told me they did. And not because that was his opinion. But because I heard him recite them at our FCA meetings without opening the Bible. I thought, wow, this guy's taking this serious. He's not just teaching us as kids. He's a sensei. He's got this memorized. I didn't think anybody memorized scripture, but preachers' kids. All my life growing up, we had one of those little ceramic daily bread things in the middle of it any of you guys had one of these things had a little slot down the middle with all these scripture memory cards and we'd take one out my parents would read it over the table and they'd put it in the back of the little little loaf and over four or five years my sister got and I got to the place where they would bring it out mom and dad to say the first word and we could finish it I have scriptures come to me from time to time I don't even I I don't even know what they are but I remember them full sentences But but I thought that was just something preachers did for preacher's kids. Until I met Mike Means. And by that time, I was in the 7th or 8th grade. I'd forgotten most of that stuff or didn't find it relevant. Whatever I'd learned to memorize in my parents' home. I had no idea that it actually applied in a junior high school. To live your life. It was a breakfast routine. Right? But Mike started showing me how, no, you can live your life by... By these words. These words have power. And he taught us about those things. And then he invited me to start coming with a few other guys every Friday, I think it was, before school, about thirty minutes before school, and he gave us these little leather holders for for scripture cards, and on one side of it it was clear so you could see through it. And and it was it it was the bread box, but it would fit in your pocket. And and we, we learned scripture. But there is no temptation that is not common to man. And God will either give you the chance. He will, I, I can't even, but I, it's in here. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. I see it on that side of the card. God will either provide a way of escape or will give me the strength to stand up under the trial. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. 1 John 5, 11 and 12. For this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. I have written to you these things that you might know. Seeds. That just a brief apprenticeship dropped into my life. And for some reason, ever since then, pretty much, I hadn't really considered it as anything necessary. What am I thinking? You know, I I, I I think back through the scriptures. Were, were there times when, when Jesus would mentor his disciples one-on-one? I think surely yes. There were certainly times where he'd take away Peter, James, and John. He would especially invest in them, help them see things, let them watch him do things that maybe the others didn't even come along for. But there must have been times in this pattern of developing people that was so common that they weren't even mentioned. Otherwise, why would the 12 disciples have been bickering and each of them thought that they had the better end of the argument over which one of them was their Joshua to Moses? Was there, who one of them, which one of them was going to be the greatest? Well, he spent time with me this morning. Well, you don't know how much time he spent with me last week. Well, I was the one that was walking with him on the road. I can just hear that conversation. After his resurrection... He walks with Cleopas on the Emmaus Road. He finds Mary alone in the garden. He comes to Peter, helps him turn around. Jesus was mentoring his disciples. I think in many ways, they saw themselves as as his apprentice. I just want to point out, if, if, that, wasn't, uh, if that wasn't Jesus' expectation, th- then some scriptures, I-, I think, have a hard time really being uh, clarified. Look at, look at Luke, if you've got your scriptures this morning. Look at Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 70 in the beginning of that chapter. He gives them authority. He tells them basically, now you go and you do what I've been doing. He's sending them out on one of these, one of these ventures. And they come back and in verse uh, 17, and the, 17 uh, and the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Jesus. It worked. We worked. You sent us out to do what you did and God did it. This is their joy. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall... Injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice uh, in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, "I praise thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and did reveal them to babes. To babes." These disciples of mine, that like little children, though they knew not how it was going to happen, trusted my word to go do what I did and let me show up. All right? He he rejoiced greatly. That that is so vanilla for what is going on there in the Greek. He, G, Jesus is is having a fit. He said he he is uh, he's doing his own end zone dance. He has just spiked the ball, and I saw Satan fall from heaven. You know, I I don't don't know what his end zone dance would have looked like. It was probably something kind of Jewish. I have no idea. (laughs) But he is exploding with joy. In fact, there, there are a few places in Scripture where Jesus' delight is captured more intensely than it's explained in that particular moment. He was delighted that those that he was apprenticing were coming into their own, that they were experiencing. He, But also, few things frustrated him. Like when they didn't get it. It was one thing for the crowds not to get it. For those who were coming and, and hearing with kind of a, oh, let's see what he has to say today. They were coming to be entertained, to see the spectacular. Maybe a miracle would happen. but But, but they, you know, but as far as applying that to their lives, as far as they really following him in such a way that they might become his apprentice, no, they were spectators. But if, if you turn to Matthew chapter 17, there's, there's a level of frustration in this passage, Jesus with his disciples, that has always made me just a little bit Uncomfortable. This. He goes up on the mountain of transfigurations. Moses and Elijah are up there. Okay, verse 14. And when they came to the multitude, a man came up to him, falling on his knees before him, Jesus, and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and he is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples... And they could not cure him. Now, I usually read that and I think, well, of course they couldn't. They were just ordinary Joes like you and me. Of course they couldn't. But notice Jesus' reaction. It almost seems unfair. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, unbelieving and twisted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had been one of those disciples in over my head saying, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for this. This is a big one. He is a lunatic. He's throwing himself in the fire. Get him out of the fire. Get him out. Well, just keep him out of the fire. John, keep him out of the fire. <laughs> How did you just do that? Did you, he just. In God's name. Be healed. <laughs> you know, and he freaks out all over again. I'm sure they, in earnest, had been with good intention. But Jesus' attitude is, is it's almost unfair. It doesn't even sound like Jesus to me. It never has. It's almost as if he's saying, "Will you guys never get it. Have you not noticed that before I prayed for the sick, I'm almost always in the mountain with my Father? I'm up there before dawn. I'm, I'm soaking in His presence. I, I, I get renewed as His agent. And then only then do I trust this kind of power. These kind only come out by prayer and fasting. What do you guys just think you can walk up and take on the world? Just go after darkness in your own strength? You know, it... Jesus had been laying a pattern for them. And he was frustrated that they seemed to think that there was nothing to this. They could handle it. Bring him to me. And he cast them out. I, I don't understand. A few places in Scripture, even with the Pharisees and those who misunderstood him and uh, were against him, rarely does Jesus so this kind of frustration that he, that he feels here with his own disciples i don't i don't i can't i don't have a framework for that unless Jesus' understanding was these guys are going to do what i do lord make us your apprentices what did Jesus do? That was the next. If we're to be, if we're to do what Jesus did, then what did Jesus do? That's a fair question, isn't it? How, how do we wrap our minds around that? And in this study, the way it's laid out, he goes back. Uh, Jim Kirby, I think is his name, uh, who I'm studying on this. He, he goes back to a pericope in Matthew. It, a pericope is a collection of teachings. It, it's, it's all these teachings that fit together in one unit, one, one theme of thought. And he starts in Matthew chapter 4. And, and there it begins with, and Jesus went out and he was preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was teaching in their synagogues. And he was healing every kind of disease. And he uses that as a rubric. After it says that, then for about the next four or five chapters, there are collections of Jesus' preaching, of Jesus' teaching, of Jesus' healing. And then in chapter 9, verses 34 and 35, it sums all that up again with almost the exact same statement. Turn with me there, if you will. Matthew chapter 9. And we'll wrap up. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, let's start. And Jesus was going about all the cities. Notice he was going. Kirby doesn't bring this out, but I think that's very important. Jesus was not a y'all come to me kind of guy. He was going after people. Jesus was going about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, And proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes then, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plenty, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest that he send out workers into his harvest They need shepherds. The harvest is ready. Weave those metaphors together and it's understandable what happens next. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. He wants them to do what he was doing. Now, the rubric we're going to use for this, I, I just need to throw this out there because I'm running out of time. The rubric that he uses for this is those things that Jesus was about sharing the good news of the kingdom, that he was about healing people's sickness and suffering, that he pushed back the darkness. And we'll get more into this, that, that this is not just an earthly mission. This is an earthly, heavenly mission mission. That we, as God's agents, don't just work in our own strength for God. We work with God in earthly realms with the power of the heavenly realms. And we'll get more into this. In Ephesians chapter 3, it talks about all that Jesus has done and the administration of what he's done becoming a reality in this world is dependent upon the church interceding Not in the world. That's how I've always read that. I always thought the church's responsibility is in the world. But he says the church intercedes in heavenly places for earthly realities. That, my friends, is different. That is the way the church is different from the Red Cross and every other help agency that you'll ever hear about. We are agents against darkness by the authority God has given us through prayer, in heavenly places for earthly results. Do you want to be an apprentice? Do do, do, do you want to put your growth as a disciple on steroids? I think this is the way to do it. What, what if we were in a church where every person both had a sponsor and was sponsoring somebody else in the faith? I wondered what that might look like. And I know of a place in this earth already where that is the case. It doesn't happen to be in a church. It happens to be in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've got a three-minute video. I want you to listen Not for what they do in AA as I talk to these two who are a sponsor and a sponsee, but listen for how this sounds different than the church and how it might need to sound more the same.
1: All right, I understand
0: you guys are um, really got to turn it up. Sponsee in a recovery program. That's right. And I'm just wondering what that might have to uh, um, tell us about what relationships. And discipleship might look like one-on-one uh, in the church. Um, so uh, t- tell me about that.
1: Do you, do you have a sponsor even as a sponsor? Or how, how often, how does that work? Yeah, I have a sponsor, and he's just someone that's ahead of me, that's been in relationship with God longer than I am, and uh, <clears throat> living by principles uh-huh. that can help me, that can strengthen me, keep me accountable. Of the people who come to your meetings, the, the large meetings where everybody gathers, how many of those people have a sponsor? At our group, everybody has one and if they're new, um, we don't we don't waste much time trying to accommodate them getting one. And uh, out of the people who have sponsors and do what's what's laid out in front of them, we got a pretty successful group of people. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. How many folks that don't have a sponsor do you think survive and continue to grow? I don't know. I don't know of anybody that has in my 10 years. So um, so would you say sponsorship is more important than the meetings or meetings more important than sponsorship or how does that what happen? Sponsorship is vital and uh, of course having a home group is vital as well uh, just like having a church that I regularly attend. Instead of going from place to place to place, we have a home group. and. Uh, which is just a basically a small group um, with, that we meet, and uh, for the purpose of recovery, and uh, we spend an hour a week, you know, an hour a night, and we start on time and end on time, and just kind of do life together. Mm-hmm. You're being sponsored, so how how does what your sponsor
0: expect you? How does that uh, differ
1: from a friendship? Well, a friendship or is. We're peers. We're friends. We have similar experiences. We're there to enjoy each other's company. A sponsor has taken a journey that I'm hoping to take, has some wisdom and experience and success that I need to to learn from, and I need to be willing to listen to that person, be honest with that person, and basically take some direction and follow the path that they have walked, walk in their footsteps, basically. Mm All right. I've heard that in sponsorship, there's really more expected than just conversation. Yes, sir what more is expected i uh i expect the guys to meet with me we face have face to face time once a week uh they call at a certain time every day um i expect them to be obedient to what they know is right and wrong you know in, in god's world and, and by the principles be obedient to what you know is right and wrong and when you know i expect them to be honest with me when they're not and uh i expect them to be at, that's their home group twice a week. Our, our group meets twice. So we, we do that twice a week and I expect them to also get involved in a in an outside commitment at a prison or a jail or a detox or something like that where we're out uh, contributing, um, out trying to help other people. Ministry. Is that something you send them off to do or is that something they do with you? They do that with me. They watch they watch what we do and, and, and how you know they learn they learn to model what we do. Some, clue, some definite clues
0: there, don't you think? Now, I, I, I don't know what that might look like when you translate it into a church environment, but I think there's all kinds of potential there. All kinds of potential. And, and you know, I think because we sometimes don't see a whole lot of life development in us, that a lot of the things that we do as a church tend to lose their sense of purpose. They, they, they just seem like activities. And I'm not interested in activitying body any more than they already are. But I am interested in us laying hold of things that can be transformational to us as people. That can really help us develop into being disciples that Jesus sees us to be. And that one sponsor to another might see in another that they may never see in themselves without that vision given them by a sponsor. Now, I'm sure there's many ways that this can go wrong, but I'm willing to, for it to get messy in order to find a way that it goes right. Do you remember Daniel's son and Mr. Miyagi? Huh? Did Anybody see Karate Kid? How many of you saw Karate Kid? I just need to know who I'm talking. Yeah, great, great movie, right? Do you remember? What's with all this waxing on and waxing off? You're not teaching me how to defend myself. You're not helping me exact revenge on those bullies that took me out. This is, this is a raw deal. You said that you would teach me how to be a conqueror and how to knock their heads around. And all you've taught me is things. Well, you haven't taught me anything. You've taught me how to wax your car. Wax on. Wax off. You, you taught me how to paint the fence. Paint the fence. I am sore from painting the fence and waxing on and waxing off. Uh, I came to you willing to be your apprentice. I was ready to learn. Was he? Was he? Was he willing to be transformed first to become the person with the results that he longed for? Or was he wanting some kind of magical pill or gift to get him there? At this point, Mr. Miyagi wins an apprenticeship. He says, "Do you remember this? Show me, paint the fence. Boom, boom, right? You remember that? He he throws these out of nowhere punches, and Daniel's son just instinctively quick, quick. You know, show me wax on, wax off, right? Boom, boom. He's he's blocking shots. Paint the fence. Wax on, and and he's you know, all of a sudden he's a ninja warrior, and nobody is more surprised than Daniel." Do you remember the look on his face? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? You don't think the disciples were the same way? Lord Jesus, we, we went into town and we prayed for him just like you said. And they were healed. Foo, foo, It was just like you said. God showed up. I'm ready to wax the car. I'm ready to paint the fence. Because my Lord has seen in me a ninja of the kingdom. And I want to become what he sees me to be. I want you to become what he sees you to become. If you feel frustrated with how you're growing as a Christian, imagine how the Lord feels. He's wanting to break through that, to take you to the next level, to develop you farther in his plan. Now, you may be asked to do some things that you're not used to doing. But isn't that okay? If it teaches you to become a ninja of the kingdom... Would you be willing to be an apprentice to someone else? Would you be willing to be sponsored? Would you be willing to serve both those roles? Isn't that really what discipleship is? I don't know what it might look like. I I wish you had a leader that was not walking in the dark with you. But Christ leads us. Our sensei has been showing us all along and we might have just overlooked it. And there's so much more for us as his disciples. Are you ready? Are you ready to grow as an apprentice to the Lord of life? Lord God, in our own hearts, we hold that question before ourselves and before you, and we pray, Lord, that we would not just look into ourselves, but we would look to you as the one who would train us, as the one whose strength would get us through, as the one whose wisdom would fill in our gaps, as our sensei, as our mentor. And God, we pray that we could be a part of the flow of building one another up in the body of Christ, that we might speak this truth to one another in love. And as we do ministry as the church, develop each other in becoming even stronger disciples for you. We pray, God, that we would become Jesus' apprentices. Show us the way. Lead our adventure. And Father, if we just think we're ready, help us to trust you so much that we're locked into to every single thing you say from this moment on. Yes, Lord. Make of us your children. And Father, we pray that in the end, the family resemblance would be absolutely obvious. Give us hearts, Lord God, to follow after you. We ask it in the name of your son. And all who would pray this prayer with me, would you say amen? Amen. And let us rise and sing this song to our master and our king.